So this morning, I wanna talk to you about the grace of the Lord because I think we all need it. And I don't know about you, sometimes I'll read missionary biographies and I'm a little overwhelmed. I'm like, oh God, this isn't what you mean for me, is it? Do you ever do that? Just like, I don't think I could do this. I don't think I could take this. This is a little heavy. When I read The Hiding Place, and there's Corey Tinboom, and she's in Ravensbrook, and she's got, she's thanking God for lice. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's a little intimidating. I don't know that I could do that. Or when I read Rosalind Goforth's book, and she was a missionary to China, and she lived during the Boxer Rebellion, being chased down by the people of, of um, China who were loyal to the empress of China and they were having rocks thrown at them and um, they were having bandits attacking them. And God gave them the grace to persevere. She had nine children while she lived in China and four of them went to heaven while she was living there. And you're just thinking, Lord, I don't think I can do that because I'm on the outside looking in at her life. There's a young girl named Hannah Overton and she's from Corpus Christi, Texas. And she took in a little foster boy who wanted to live with her family. And he didn't have any place to go. And she didn't know that he had a metabolic problem. And she was pregnant at the time, already had four children. And he climbed into her cupboard and ingested all her salt. And he died from that. And the police arrested her for it. She had tried to give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation in the car on the way to the hospital. So the marks like this for pinching his cheeks, they said that she had done this and poured salt down his um, throat. And it was just a hung jury, and it was terrible, and she went to prison. And she had her fifth child in prison. Now, I look at that, and I think, oh, Lord, what a miscarriage of justice. She leads a Bible study in prison. She has over uh, 40 to 80 inmates that come to the Bible study that she's been doing and they do the Joyful Life Bible study in prison. And they sent me, they sent me 40 letters of how Joyful Life has changed their lives, how they've received Jesus Christ all because of Hannah. And Hannah said, well, I always felt called to be a missionary. I just never knew it was gonna be in the Texas penal system. But she takes it and she's got this grace on her life to do exactly what she's doing. Her husband is raising those five children, said, I'm married to Hannah for life. And he goes um, at least twice a month and takes all the kids and they go up to visit her in the prison. The church went up there and they went outside the gates and they sang all the choruses to her and to the prisoners um, that were there. It's, It's grace, it's absolutely grace. And perhaps sometimes we look on at somebody else's life and we're like, Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't think I can do that. And I'm really glad that they can. But Lord, I don't know that I can. And you probably can't because you don't have their grace. God gives each one of us a special dispensation of grace for exactly what our lives entail. And, you know, we don't have each other's grace because grace is individualized to each of us. I have a a friend who uh, lost her baby full term, nine months. 
And she had to deliver the baby. They gave her uh, Pertocin and she had to deliver. It was a very, very hard labor. Her husband was going in, coaching her, and then somebody would show up from the church in Vista to comfort them. They would fall apart, start crying. The husband would have to comfort them and said, would you mind if I got back in the room and help my wife out? They're like, no, no, go. I'll be all right. She's in there. Later, she testified, my friend Jennifer, she said, Cheryl, Jesus was in the room with us. It was painful, but it was one of the most glorious experiences I have ever had in my life. And God's grace just covered us. She was overcome by grace. In 1 Peter 4.14, Peter said, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is what grace does. In these hard, trying places, that spirit of God, that spirit of grace rests upon us. And people say, how did you do that? I don't know how I did that. All I know is that ready supply of grace was there. When Corey Tinboom was a little girl, she was complaining to her father that she didn't want to die. And they were about to get on the train, and her father turned to her and he said, Corey, when do I give you the ticket for the train? And she said, Why, Father, right before I have to give it to the conductor. And he said, That's right, and that's when God will give you the grace for the situation you're going to face for death right before you get on the train. Char years ago, who's now 30, but when he was young and went by Charlo, we were on an airplane and he, he started getting really agitated. He said, mom, I think this airplane's going to crash and we're going to burn to death and die. And he just was so scared. He was beside himself. And I said, Char, that's not going to happen. How do you know? And I said, Char, I know because you don't have the grace for it. And I said, if we were going to die, you'd have this peace and you'd have total grace. And he's like, okay, good. (laughs) Then he came back and he's like, mom, I'm a little worried. I said, why? Because I'm feeling kind of calm and peaceful. (laughs) And I said, no, Chart, if we were going to die, you would actually be like, hey, we're going to crash any moment. It's going to be so cool. He's like, okay, I don't have that. We're safe. And that's what I want to say to you. You know, perhaps you've been reading Acts 21, 22, and you're reading about Paul's ordeal. And you're like, oh no, am I supposed to be like that? Trials and tribulation await you. Oh, let's get going. Yeah, bring it on. And you're like, I'm not that great of a Christian. No, you're a great Christian. You just don't have that grace that God gave to Paul for this exact situation. God gave him the ticket. He had the ticket and he was anxious to get on the train. You see, God will prepare you with his grace. God will propel you forward by his grace. And in that grace, you will have the desire to proclaim that grace that God is giving you. It's almost you want to say, don't try this, what I'm doing without grace. Because without God's grace, it's impossible to do this. Maybe you have non-believing neighbors and they're like, I don't know how you're doing it. I don't know how you're bearing up with this. I have two different friends. Um, 
who uh, lived in Vista at the same time I did. And both of their husbands lost their jobs. And in both cases, their husbands were without work for two years. Totally sustained. The money, they never knew where the money was going to come in. Neither one of them lost their houses. Neither one. They held on to their houses for those two years that their husbands didn't work. And it was like amazing to watch God's provision. But the interesting thing is, both my friends, Linda and Raylene, both testified that their neighbors would be like, I don't know how you're doing this. Where is the money coming from? And Raylene was like, I never know, but it's always from God and it's always faithful. In fact, she, she did a workshop on a God that supplies. And she was able to say, no, God gave her the grace to go through two years. She did say after a year, she said, okay, God, I think that's long enough. I think lesson learned. And he said, no, let's just do it a little bit longer. Two years. My other friend, Linda, same thing, two years. And after two years, God gave her husband the greatest job. Same thing with Raylene. These amazing jobs that they still have today. And that was over 18 years ago. Our God is able and he gives us the grace and the grace is a witness. And both Raylene and Linda wanted to proclaim the grace of God. The grace that sustained, the grace that brought them through, the grace that is available to anyone who wants it. That grace of God. God's grace, you will feel a peace a peace. There's just this overwhelming peace when God's grace is upon you. You see, God's grace prepares us for God's will. God's grace propels us into God's will. God's grace is proclaimed through God's will. God's grace preserves us in God's will. God's grace gives us peace in his will. And God's grace perseveres to accomplish his will. You might not have the grace for Paul's experience. And you might not have God's grace for Corey Tinboom's experience. Or for Rosalind Goforth's. Or for my friends. But you have more than sufficient grace for God's will for your life. More than sufficient grace. God's grace prepares. In Acts chapter 20, verse 23, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit was preparing him for what would happen in Jerusalem. That every place he went, the Holy Spirit testified that chains and tribulation awaited him. When Paul landed in Tyre, the believers there told him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. That is how they applied the preparation of the Spirit. And so many of us would. You know, we're always trying to spare our friends from hardship, are we not? I know that I want to spare my children constantly. I don't want them to have to learn the same way I learned. If there's a, you know, plan A, the easy way to learn all that God has for you, give me that book. Because I kind of did the Z book. Like, let's go through everything, receive the chastening, and then learn. There was a song by DC Talk Talk years ago, and it was, I'm the type that's got to learn the hard way. I've got to find out by myself. 
And I just like, no, I want to learn the easy way. You know, I, I like that scripture in Psalm 32 where God says, don't be like the mule that you have to put a bit in bridle because you go the wrong way, it hurts. So they learn obedience through pain. He said, I just want to guide you with my eye. I'm like, yes, that's the one I want. Guide me with your eye. No bit, no bridle. Guide me with your eye. But I, I've come, I've come that, to that place after, in my younger years, having the bit and bridle. And sometimes I watch my children with the bit and bridle and I'm like, oh my goodness, aren't you trained yet? Can't we take that thing out? Like when you got your braces removed, aren't we ready? And sometimes in our well-meaning love, we will keep people from the very thing that God intends for them to learn the lessons they need to learn. I remember when my first daughter was working on her testimony and I didn't want her to have a testimony. I wanted her to say I was saved in Sunday school at four years old and I just held to it. And I remember a friend of mine said, she's working on her testimony. And I did not like that word. I did not want that. I didn't want her to have to go through these things. I wanted her just to live in the filet mignon of God's goodness. And yet, because of her testimony, she is so firm, she is so strong with Jesus that she will not be moved. She will not be moved. Not because mommy told her so, but because Jesus showed her so. So these well-meaning believers, as they're hearing about the chains, as the Spirit is speaking to them about what Paul will have to suffer in Jerusalem, what he will go through, they're saying, don't go, don't go. And isn't that how we are too? You know, don't go. If it means suffering, don't go. We live in the United States and suffering to us is a bad word. Suffering, it's bad. I I was listening to um, a debate between John Lennox and another woman. And this woman was an atheist because of suffering. Because she thought suffering was a bad word. Jill Briscoe tells a story of going to Cambodia and seeing the killing fields in Cambodia. And she looked at her guide and she said, are you uncomfortable with this? And her guide said, well, in that grave right there, in that pit, are the bones of my father, my brother, my mother, and my cousins. And she said, they clubbed me over the head too and threw me into that pit. And I waited till it was dark and they were gone and I crawled out of that pit and I made my way back to the village and my neighbors took me in and they raised me. Jill Briscoe said to her, how did that affect you when you heard the gospel? your experience. She said, oh, you Westerners. She said, here in the East, we have a saying that Westerners, when they feel any hardship or suffering, they're like, get this off my back. She said, but here in the East, we have a saying, strengthen my back to handle all the hardships that life brings. So she said, when I heard about a God who was willing to experience suffering to come into my world of suffering and to experience the greatest sense of suffering, I said, that's the God I want to know. 
You see, we can be so much like Peter. Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer there. I'm going to be rejected by the elders. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be mocked and humiliated and condemned and crucified. Not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. In fact, we're told that Peter began to rebuke him. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but of men. God values our suffering. He takes our suffering, this light affliction that we have on earth, and he creates out of it a beautiful weight of glory that we will receive in heaven. I think when we get to heaven and we see the beautiful weights of glory, we're going to be like, why didn't I suffer more? It'll seem like it's so in the past. It was so worth it. Paul comes to Caesarea to the house of Philip. This is the same Philip that you read about in Acts chapter 6, one of the seven that was chosen to wait tables. He's the Philip of Acts chapter 8 that led the revival in Samaria. And now we find that he lives in Caesarea and he's got four daughters who are virgins and they are gifted like their father. They prophesy. And Paul stays for a time in Caesarea at this house and a prophet, Agabus, who Paul knew from Antioch, comes to the house and he picks up Paul's belt and he begins to bind himself with his belt. And he says... So it will happen. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 11 of chapter 21. You see, God was preparing Paul for what was about to happen. He was preparing Paul. Amos 3.7, the prophet Amos says this, Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. God prepares us. God prepared us for his Messiah. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the first coming of the Messiah. God prepares us. He prepares us by his grace. It might be our circumstances. It might be our background. It might be our culture. But he is faithful to prepare us for his calling on our lives. And Paul was prepared. He was prepared by the Spirit. He was prepared by previous experiences. He was even prepared for what was about to happen by his Roman citizenship since he was born in Tarsus. And grace will prepare you for the will of God. It might be your devotions, what you read that that morning or this morning in your scriptures, in the scriptures of the Lord. And as you go about your day, you're like, oh, this is what you were talking about. That's why that scripture meant so much to me today. You ever have that? Like a scripture will just grab you and you're like, I don't know why this is grabbing me, but I want to write it down. And then that day, it's the very thing that you need to hold on to. I love to write down scriptures that really grab me and put them in my pocket. And sometimes I think I have money. You know how it is? You reach in, you go, no, but it's a scripture. And that's worth more. And and you read that scripture. And I can't tell you how many times that scripture has prepared me for exactly, exactly my day. 
And you know, I, I do it to give the scripture to somebody else. But sometimes I'm like, no, this is a keeper. <laughs> After what's happening today. Sometimes it's our hearts. We're feeling this inclination on in our heart. Sometimes we're in denial. Our heart is trying to tell us something. We're, no, no, I, I, I'm refusing that one. But the Lord is trying to prepare us for something. He wants to flood us with his grace and prepare us, and we need to receive that message. Sometimes it's our friends. They're, they're saying these things, or they're going through things, and we're thinking, that's interesting. That's something that resonates with me. And then we go through that thing, and you think, Lord, you were preparing me by your grace. I can call them because they've already been through this, and they can share their grace with me. I'm prepared. Sometimes it's by prophecies. God is preparing us. There's a young woman who um, goes to this fellowship. Her name is Brittany. She's absolutely adorable. She comes up to me and she goes, okay, because she does that face. And she's like, I'm not sure if this is me. Those of you who know Brittany know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not sure if this is me or if this is God, but I love Ireland. And I feel like maybe I'm called to Ireland. Would, Would that be God? And I said, it could very well be God. Let's just pray about it. She's like, but it's just like this thing in my heart. Every time I hear Ireland, I'm like, is that how God works? And I say, it could be. Let's just pray. So I lay hands on her and I pray. And she likes all things Irish, anything Irish. She's totally attracted to it. So I pray for Brittany. I know she has this desire. So we have this afterglow at the fall retreat. And, you know, a couple people said things like they were supposed to, as the Spirit put it on their heart. The next day, and this always happens, the next day, like five people come up to me going, I think I was supposed to share this last night, but I got scared. And you're like, yes, you were supposed to, you know? But anyway, I do it nicer than that. You were. (laughs) And so this woman comes up to me, and she says, Cheryl, I got this vision last night and I think I should have shared it and it's so strong on my heart. But I saw like this street and she said, I've never been to Ireland, but it looked like an Irish street. And there was a rainbow across it. Like go to Ireland because the promises of God are awaiting you there. And I said, you were so supposed to share that last night. I even know who that's for. I'm going to go quiet. You come up to the microphone right now. And I just want you to watch what happens when you share that. So she gets up and she shares the prophecy. And Brittany's in the back and she's like, ah! just like that was so fun. This is why you need to share those visions at the afterglow when the Lord gives them to you because the reactions are so fun. Do it for the reaction. (laughs) But it might be a prophecy that prepared you. Years ago, I was a wild 13-year-old. Not wild in immoral, wild as in hyperactive. I got kicked out of the junior high fellowship for crawling under the pews. And they made me go to my dad's Bible studies, which I actually fell in love with. From the time I was 12 on, I'm like, he's the best teacher ever. I mean, I just, I would take notes. I could be good during that. I only got one note one time. You know, could the girl in the red jacket please shut her mouth and listen to Chuck? So that was only one time after that. And somehow they realized who I was because my mom knew about it. It's just very nice, very gracious. But this is all to say that... um, I would be, I never 
quite walked through this church. I was usually running through this church, and there was always somebody who would, you know, rebuke me for running through the church. Always. I was always in trouble because I was hyperactive. I was always climbing the trees. I was always on top of the church roof. Um, I just was hyper. It was hard to contain all my energy in my package. And so I got in trouble a lot. Not for, like I said, immorality, for talking, for running, for climbing, for saying things out of turn. And there was this one old man named Roy Peebler. And he would, he would always find me. And he would grab my cheeks and he would pinch them and he'd say, Cheryl, the Lord is giving you this church. The Lord is giving, look around, look at this church. God is giving it. It's passing from your father to you. Look at this church. And I'd be like, I don't want to look at the church. Oh, I just went away from Roy, so he'll quit pinching my cheeks. And then he'd kiss me on each cheek. And he would do that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I never wanted to live in Orange County. Again, I loved Vista. I mean, it was like the fashions that were out here were still in there for like years. And nobody wore beige. We wore colors. It was just, I loved Vista. I loved England. But I knew this was awaiting me. And I knew there'd be a cost. And I didn't want to pay that cost. But I was being prepared by grace. You're being prepared by grace. Right now, God is preparing you by grace for the call, for the will for his will, which is the call on your life. Next, grace propels us. Paul could not be dissuaded from the will of God. Did you notice that? He was not deterred by the difficulty of getting to Jerusalem, though he had to walk, sail, and change ships. There were many hardships and dangers as he traveled. In 2 Corinthians 11.26, he outlined some of those. He said there were perils of water, perils of robbers, perils in the wilderness, perils in the city, perils in the sea. Paul was also undeterred by the well-meaning saints. When the Ephesian elders wept and he had to depart in Acts 21.1, that word departed means he had to tear himself away from. It actually is the Greek word for ripping apart. It was ripping his heart to leave those Ephesian elders. And yet he was propelled. No hardship in travel, No emotional connection could keep him from being in the will of God. We know that it was women, men, and children, and there's nothing like children tugging at your heart. Please don't go, Mr. Paul, to to make you rethink or maybe not want to go. And we're told in Acts 21.5, they knelt down with him, women, children, and the men, and prayed. At Philip's house, he was still determined to go to Jerusalem, even after Agabus prophesied. Even after those who heard these things pleaded with him not to go. Paul was determined. He said to them, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die. When they realized that he could not be dissuaded, they ceased their pleading and concluded, the will of the Lord be done. Isn't that what Jesus tells us to pray? In Matthew chapter 6, he tells us, 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, there are times that we are trying to dissuade people from grace. Grace is propelling them forward, but it might seem dangerous or different than the norm, but they're being propelled by the grace of God. And we need to back off and say, let the will of the Lord be done. Years ago, there was a woman who made a six-figure salary at a, a large company in Orange County. And she felt called to go to the Philippines and work in an orphanage. And I remember her supervisor called Brian and said, you can't let her go. She could do more for the mission field, making those six figures. She is a genius. She could run this company someday. Don't let her go and take care of those little children with AIDS. That would be a waste of her talents. That would be a waste of her wisdom and her abilities. And Brian said, let's let her decide what the calling of God is on her life and what the will of the Lord is. Jesus said, what should it gain him? What should it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And this woman did indeed go and she's still at that orphanage today. And she does not regret that she gave up six figures. But this propelling grace, it will compel you to go against all odds. You're thinking, what in the world am I doing? Maybe some of you have heard Pam Markey speak at our retreats. Pam Markey and her husband, George, they lived in Indiana. He had a a large church in Indiana. They also owned a farm and they had six children. And he came home from church one day and he said, Pamela, I feel like the Lord is calling us to Siberia. She said, close, but I think it might be Russia. They were both wrong. It was Ukraine. And I remember they called Brian and said, we feel called to go to the Ukraine. And Brian said, you know, you've got six kids. You need to pray about that. Really pray because Ukraine is a very hard place. But George had gone on these um, outreaches and he was convinced. They moved there and George Markey Sr. became the father of the Calvary Chapel movement in the Ukraine. He was amazing. His children all became worship leaders. And now at this day, every single one of his children is serving in the mission field. And yet well-meaning people would have kept them from being propelled by the grace of God. See, God's will to those under grace is not a duty, but a delight. It is, I want to do the will of God. I can't wait to do the will of God. Nothing will stop me from the will of God. What appears to be a hardship to others is simply par for the course of grace. Then grace proclaims grace. Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem to proclaim God's grace to the leaders of the church there. We find that in Acts 21, 18 through 19, that Paul tells James and the brethren, all the grace that God is doing among the Gentile believers all over the world. He talks about how God had showered his grace upon Paul and how God had showered his grace upon the Gentiles. The brethren are informed about Paul's about Paul and they let him know there's been misinformation that's been circulating around Jerusalem about you. 
There are those that say that you are teaching the Jews to forsake the law of Moses. And you are telling the Gentiles that the law of Moses has no place in their life. That was a perversion of Paul's teaching. Paul was teaching that you could not be saved by the law. That human effort, rules and regulations could not make you right with God. Only Jesus can make you right with God. But when you receive Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in and the spirit of grace and you begin to obey by the power of grace, not by human effort. That's what Paul says to the Galatians. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave his life for me. In other words, and Paul says, it's God's grace now moving through me. I'm dead to the law. And yet by the grace of God, as I live in Christ, I'm obeying it. Because Jesus obeyed every iota of the law. And as we're in Christ, we are obeying. And it's God propelling us. So they had gotten misinformation about Paul. So the brethren advised Paul to demonstrate his respect for the law publicly by taking these four young men who have taken a vow and to pay their expenses or pay for their offerings, pay for their lambs, so that they can offer these sacrifices and everybody will see Paul obeys the law. He obeys the law not by human effort, but by the spirit of God working through him. As Paul would say in Romans chapter nine, I do not set aside the law of the Lord. I don't set it aside. I obey it, but it's by grace and not by human effort. Paul agrees, and seven days later, as Paul is in the temple, we're told that he is seen by Jews from Asia, those Jews that hounded him and followed him every place, who lied about him and slandered him. They see it, and they assume that he is bringing a Gentile into the temple grounds because a week earlier, they had seen him with a Greek in Jerusalem. Now, here again, we have assumption, presumption, fear, conjecture, lying, mixed with distrust, leading to confusion and what? Chaos. Absolute chaos. Because we find that there are those who are crying out, laying hands on Paul, and they begin to beat Paul. And the commander of the garrison comes with soldiers. He arrests Paul and he takes him to the barracks. But as Paul is going to the barracks, he says, excuse me, would you mind if I said a word to this to this group of people, the commander says, wait, are you an Egyptian? Are you the one responsible for the insurrection and those 4,000 people being killed and you got away? And he's like, no, that's not me. Can I, can I talk to this crowd? And so the commander gives him permission. Paul motions with his hand and the whole mob, all that confusion, all that chaos is suddenly quiet. And when Paul begins to speak to them in the Hebrew language, they become even more quiet. You see, they're quiet before the proclamation of grace. And Paul begins to proclaim grace. Paul wants these people to know his testimony, what he was, and how he has been changed by grace. He wants to herald it. So Paul proclaims God's grace in his own life. He was 
fully a Jew like them. He was born in Tarsus, but educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. He was taught according to the strictness of the patriarch's law. He was zealous toward God. He was also hostile like them. He understood their hostility. He says, I'm not, I'm not judging you. I was just like you. I was hostile. I persecuted Christians to death. I bound and delivered men and women to prison. Perhaps this is part of the preparation for grace too. I was just like you. So I know. So I relate. He said, I served under the authority of the high priest and elders. And at one time I had letters of authority to bind Christians in Damascus. But then Paul wants to talk about his encounter with grace when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So he tells them, I was in the same direction you're going in until I was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus about to do my worst yet. And Jesus himself stopped me with a blinding light. My companions saw the light and they were afraid. And Jesus called out to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Here's the encounter that transformed Paul. And Paul says, you're about to do your worst to me. But you can have the same transforming encounter of grace. You see, grace wants to proclaim grace. Jesus directs Paul to go to Damascus to await further instructions. Paul, by this time, he's been transformed by grace. Ananias is afraid to lay hands on Paul, even though he's a devout Jew, even though he's obeyed the law. He's saying to the Lord, Lord, I've heard about this man. He has done much harm to your church and to other Christians. But God is telling Ananias, Paul has been transformed by grace. He's now safe where he was a bully where he was dangerous, where he was a threat. Now he's been transformed by grace. Ananias is told to lay his hands on Saul. And as he lays his hands on Saul, he says, the God of our fathers. Again, here's this association with the Jews, the same fathers. We share those same patriarchs has chosen you that you should know his will, see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And at that moment, Paul received his sight, cleansing from sin, forgiveness of past sins, and a commission from God to proclaim Jesus. He received grace. So Paul was encountered by grace. Paul was transformed by grace. Paul received grace, and this is the grace that Paul wanted to proclaim. He wanted to proclaim it to the Gentiles. He wanted to proclaim it to the Jews at Jerusalem. But as he was praying, the Holy Spirit spoke to him, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. The Lord spoke to him and said, Paul, I know you want to proclaim grace, but they will not receive it. Now, Paul wants to convince the Lord otherwise. Have you ever tried to convince the Lord otherwise? 
Paul says, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then the Lord says to him, it's not going to work, Paul. You need to depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. You're going to proclaim grace to the Gentiles beyond the border of Israel. Now, those who receive grace want to proclaim it, especially if you have a testimony. You want to proclaim the transforming power of Jesus Christ. It's just in us. We can't wait. John Newton wanted to proclaim grace. He had been a slave trader. God had changed him. He then, after the transformation, worked for the emancipation of slavery. But he wrote Amazing Grace. Billy Sunday, who had been a ruffian, a bad guy, and became an evangelist in the United States, he used to say that God can save to the guttermost all that come to him. D.L. Moody wanted to proclaim grace. When you know and feel and receive grace, you want to proclaim grace. I was on the East Coast and I did a Bible study. And after I did the Bible study, I thought, I just didn't say it right. It, it wasn't the right, oh, you know, I, I blew it. I had so much to say. You know, when you have a great word and you feel like, Lord, you needed a better vessel, you know, and that was just how I felt so like condemned. And I was walking down the hall and these two older women go, we know you're condemned. We've been praying for you. Get over it. And, you know, walked by. I was like, thank you very much. So the next year I was asked to do this. I was asked to do this conference down in Florida. And so when they called me up, I was living in England at the time. I'm like, why me? And they said, that Bible study that you gave at the East Coast Pastors' Wives, we show it to all our potential leadership. It's the best Bible study ever. I'm like, you're kidding me. I have never felt so condemned over a Bible study, except for a couple weeks ago when I talked about the Chihuahua, ever in my whole entire life. Arf. I just, I don't know why I did that, you know? <laughs> and they're like, no, no. And so I went and I, I spoke at that church and, you know, God blessed it. And the next year, the very pastor's wife that invited me, she spoke at the East Coast Pastor's Wives Conference. And as I was walking down the hallway, I saw her crying in the hallway. And these women were around her comforting her. And I was like, oh my goodness, she's condemned over that Bible study she did, just like I was, and God used it. I have to proclaim grace to her. I have to proclaim grace over her. And and the person I was with was like, come on, come on. I'm like, no, I have to proclaim grace for this moment I was born. It was just like so incredible to tell her, no, I know exactly how you feel, and let me let you know that God is going to use this. He will use those times when you think I blew it so bad. (laughs) Talking about Jawawa. God will use it (laughs) for glory. When you are touched by grace, you know what you want? You want everyone to be touched by grace. Isn't that the truth? 
You want to tell them about the grace that God showed you, the grace that prepared you, the grace that propelled you. That's the grace you want to proclaim. In 1 Timothy 1, 14 through 16, Paul says this, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So Paul wanted to proclaim grace. Look at me, he's saying to those in Jerusalem. I'm an object of grace. There's more than enough grace for all of you, for all of you. If he could transform me, the chief of sinners, he can transform you. We see also that Paul was preserved by grace throughout Paul's whole ordeal, throughout all of his ministry. It was grace that preserved him again and again and again. As he's traveling to Jerusalem, he is preserved by grace. The capture by Jews in Jerusalem, he's saved by a garrison of Romans. He's preserved by grace. The reaction to the proclamation of God's grace to the Gentiles, the mob begins to scream, away with this fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. The mob would have killed him, but we're told, actually, the true rendering is that the, the, the soldiers from the barrack heaved him up on their shoulders away from the crowd so they couldn't get to him. This is grace preserving Paul. The mob is crying out. They're tearing their clothes. They're throwing dust in the air. But Paul is preserved. And God is using Gentiles to save and keep him safe. And he's under guard. Then the commander wants to find out, what is it you said in Hebrew that I didn't understand that they're so upset about? What did you say to them? And so he orders Paul to be beaten. And Paul says, wait, can you beat me and put me in chains when I'm a Roman citizen? The commander stops and says, wait, I had to purchase mine. I'm a second-class Roman citizen. Paul says, well, I'm a first-class one. I was born in Tarsus. I'm a free-born Roman citizen. Suddenly, the tables are turned. Paul is preserved by grace. Again, you see the preparation of grace, that Paul would be born in Tarsus of all places, that Paul would be a Roman citizenship, have Roman citizenship. Grace keeps you safe through all the ordeals that are in God's will. Grace will preserve you. When you are in the will of God, you will be preserved by grace. Next, we come to the peace of grace. Paul is completely composed throughout this whole time. He's not upset at the prophecies like, what, trials? Are you kidding me? He cooperates with the brethren in Jerusalem. He does not fight against the attackers at the temple. He doesn't resist arrest. Paul is composed enough to request to speak to Jews, the Jews. And Paul calmly addresses them. He doesn't defend himself of the charges, saying, you're liars, it's not true, I'm innocent. you, You sense just this clear presentation of his testimony. Then he calmly presents his Roman citizenship to the commander. He doesn't say, you better stop it. I'm a Roman citizen. 
No, he just says, hey, is this all right to do? Do you want to think this out a little bit, you know, before you do this? It's just so calm. There's such a peace. There's such a peace upon Paul. Whenever Paul would write his epistles, he would always send these greetings, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Never once was it peace and grace. It was always grace and peace because the peace always follows the grace because the peace is impossible without the grace. If you don't have the grace, you won't feel the peace. If you don't have the grace, you won't have the peace. It's grace that brings us reconciliation to God. It's that, it's that grace that gives us access to the throne room of grace. Without grace, there can be no peace. I have learned to look for peace because peace is a huge sign to me that God's grace is with me. And when I don't feel that peace, I either go get on my knees and I pray for more grace if this is what God means for me or I get out of the situation because I don't have grace. You know, if, if you can't be nice to the kids you're teaching in Sunday school, then you don't have grace and that's not the ministry for you. Consider the convalescent home ministry. If you don't have the grace, then it's not for you because God's grace will be abundant for whatever he's called you to do. So we need to look for the peace. Am I feeling peace in this situation? Am I calm? Everybody else is afraid for me, but I'm calm because there is an unearthly peace that will settle on you when you are in the will of God. Finally, God's grace perseveres. Remember, Paul was not daunted, dissuaded, or deterred from God's will. He wasn't. He persevered through hardship. He persevered through warnings, through pleadings, through persecution, through arrest, through mobs. Paul was determined to proclaim the grace of God wherever God called him to do. And grace will cause you to persevere through everything to be an overcomer and victor in the call of God. Your circumstances might not be like Paul's. I hope they're not for your sake. Don't want to see any mobs around here, really. They might not be. But let me say this, that God has given you all the grace you need for your life and for the call on your life. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, Paul would write this, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you having all sufficiency, everything you need, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, might have an abundance, an abundance for every good work. Today, you have enough grace. You have enough grace for everything that's going to come your way today. Now, sometimes we're asking for tomorrow's grace. Well, I'm feeling good about today, but what about tomorrow? Tomorrow, when you wake up, there will be enough grace because his mercies are new every morning. And mercy is, um, it's, it's got a tight relationship with grace. It's hard to separate the two. But tomorrow morning, when you wake up, there will be all new mercies 
and another huge load of grace coming your way for all that your life will entail, all the will of the Lord. My friends who made it through those two years with their husbands not having work, my friend Linda said she couldn't look up ahead and say, what about next month? She had to just live each day at a time, and she found that there was ample provision for each day, even waking up and somebody leaving groceries on their front porch. There was enough grace. There's enough grace for today, and there will be enough grace for tomorrow. And the day after that, there will be a new portion of grace. But this is one I want to leave you with. There is enough grace for your life. There is more than sufficient amount. In fact, there's an abundance of grace for you. Jesus said to Paul what he says to us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you or more than enough for you. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He had a a physical ailment. But God was saying, my grace is more than enough to cover this. There's more than enough grace. And you can drink as deeply of God's grace as you want to. You can have as much grace as you want. You can go, you can exceed your need for grace. The grace is there. There's an ocean of grace. But I want to ask you, what are you coming to the ocean of grace with? Are you coming with a teaspoon? He said, no, Cheryl, I got a tablespoon. Good for you. You come in with a, a ladle? You come in with an espresso cup? You come in with a mug? You come in with a teacup? Are you coming with a swimming pool? You come in with a lake? Or are you just diving in the ocean? I'll take it all. I want to dive into the ocean of grace today because it's more than sufficient not to live Paul's life. Not to live Paul's call. Not to live in the will that God ordained for Paul. But there's more than enough grace to live in the will of God for Cheryl Broderson. In the will of God, tailor-made for you. There's more than enough grace. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you have given us ample grace, Lord. You have exceeded our need. Lord, just like the loaves and fish, Lord, you have not only sated our hunger, not only can we have as much as we want, not only can we be satisfied, but Lord, there are 12 baskets still remaining to keep eating, to keep partaking, to share with others of this amazing grace. Oh Lord, I pray today that we would be partakers in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, that you, we would allow you to prepare us by your grace, to propel us by your grace. Lord, that you would make us proclaimers of grace. Lord, that we would be preserved by grace, feel your peace that comes with grace, and persevere in grace, Lord. Thank you for the abundance of grace that you have given us in Jesus' name. Amen.